Well, good morning, New Hope. If you don't know me, it's because we haven't met yet. <laughs> My name is Gary Post. I'm the care pastor here at New Hope. Uh, Mark Kring, the senior pastor, uh, will be back next week. And um, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, that song, uh, I love that song. And it reminds me uh, that uh, God holds us in his hand, no matter whether we can feel it or not, no matter what's going on in our lives. And I know many of you well enough to know uh, about some of the, the, the things that you're, uh, the, the difficulties and hardships and traumatic experiences that you're going through right now. And uh, that song is a wonderful song of assurance that no matter what happens, uh, God loves us beyond anything we can comprehend. He controls everything that happens in our lives and, and that he desires only good for us. Just, just a wonderful promise. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, handling anger wisely. And uh, obviously, there's a, uh, I, I want to uh, share a scriptural uh, insight and at the same time, practical wisdom on how to, how to go about that as we live our lives in this angry world. But here's a little disclaimer, and that is that um, I'm not talking to you directly. Don't feel like I'm singling you out. I, I met with a couple the other night. I do a fair amount of counseling. I met with a couple the other night. I said, listen, um, I'm going to be talking about anger on Sunday. And I just want you to know I'm not talking about you, Okay. Uh, anger is something that we all deal with, and especially in relationships, uh, uh, marriage uh, is a crucible, and it brings out both the best and, and the worst it, uh, in, in us as, as individuals. And so uh, anger is commonplace, and it's an obstacle in many relationships to, uh, to, to getting to a, a healthy place uh, for a lot of reasons. And so a lot of couples and, and individuals uh, deal with anger, not just in marriage relationships, but, but many others as well. Then a housekeeping issue. You'll notice your outline, if you have that in front of you, it begins with a, a Roman numeral two. I don't want you to be angry about that. <laughs> that that's uh, just an oversight on my part. You know, as you do the cut and paste between the, the document and, and trying to turn it into a folder like that, um, it just began with a, a, a two. So um, I know that some of you will feel compelled to take your pen and go down through there and correct each of those Roman numerals, that's fine. Do what you need to do. Uh, that, that's okay. Let's, uh, let's give this time to God before we begin. Dear Father, I thank you for these folks this morning, uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, these folks could have been anywhere this morning on a beautiful Sunday morning, but they chose to be here. Uh, they, they've chosen to follow you uh, they desire to walk more closely with you and to hear from your word this morning, uh, to be in your presence this morning, to offer praise and worship and, and to learn from your word this morning. And so we, we know that nothing of any eternal value will take place unless your Holy Spirit is here in power. And so we ask you to fill this place, open our hearts and, uh, and speak to us clearly through your word this morning about how to live distinctively as followers of Jesus Christ in this angry world. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think it's just me. I think uh, it, it seems like everybody's so angry, doesn't it? 
Uh, Jean and I watched a newscast the other night, and I said to her, an evening newscast, I said to her, uh, it, it just seems like the whole newscast was one series of angry confrontations after another. Doesn't it? I mean, um, news reports about angry incidents that, that erupt into violence. I think last Sunday alone in Chicago, 53 people were shot in one day in, in Chicago. Road rage, road rage incidents that we now see on video played out before our very eyes. Angry protests that erupt into violence. Anger and bullying on social media. Cable news shout shows where angry confrontations between people seem to be the norm. And even in families and workplaces, angry outbursts are, are all too common. And the way anger and rage are handled often does lasting damage to relationships among adults and, and especially a destructive impact on the long-term physical and emotional and psychological development of children when they're exposed to, to that kind of anger. And unfortunately, it even occurs in Christian marriages and other relationships involving Christians. Uh, a few years ago, a, a couple came to me because, uh, a, a couple came to me and I said, well, how can I help you? And, and they said, well, we have so much conflict in our marriage. And, and I said, well, how are you managing that now? They said, well, we, uh, we pretty much stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with each other and shout at each other and, and then we stomp off with it unresolved. And I, I put on my best Dr. Phil face and I said, well, how's that working for you? And we all had a laugh, and they said, not very well. And that's why we're, we're here. I said, well, there's good news. Uh, there are much more effective ways to, to resolve conflict, and you won't have to put Band-Aids on each other after the, after the fact. But you see, they had grown up in a place where uh, both of their adult role models in, in their, their uh, family resolved conflict in that way. So that was their norm. They thought everybody resolved conflict in that way. Uh, not so. The Bible has much to say about, about anger, where it comes from, whether it's always sinful or not, how to handle the emotion of anger wisely uh, in a way that honors God and, and in a way that doesn't damage the people around us. So today we're going to look at the example of a wise woman, Abigail, in 1 Samuel 25. She was a woman who responded wisely to handle the emotion of anger in, in a way that that uh, saved her family from destruction and in a way that honored God. So uh, where does anger come from? That's the question. And, and is it always a sin? Is it, here's a question for you. This is the audience participation portion. Is anger always sinful? No. Uh, some of you are afraid to answer because you think it's an ambush. It's a trick question. And, and uh, it's really not. Uh, no, anger isn't always sinful. And, and we know that because uh, we see that God gets angry sometimes, doesn't he? he he's, he's described as, as feeling anger, and yet we know he's perfectly righteous and holy and just. He doesn't sin, and, and yet he experiences anger as an emotion. Uh, Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does become angry, and, and he expresses that in, uh, to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 44 says, Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you've come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a, a taunt among all the nations of the earth, or a mockery, in other words. And then who can forget the example of Jesus 
in, uh, in the Gospels, in John 2 in particular, where it says he, he made a, a whip out of cords and, and he drove money changers and, and others out of the temple and, and he uh, turned their tables over. He, he was obviously angry. He said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And he responded in anger. So anger is just one of a, a range of emotions that God feels. And folks, we're made in the image of God. One of the evidences of that is that we feel that full range of emotions that, that God feels. Feeling the, the emotion of anger is not necessarily sinful. In fact, it can be a, a godly response that, that addresses evil and injustice and protects us and protects those we love. I can still remember vividly, and, and I have to go way back in the, in the data bank uh, because this was probably 60 years ago. But I can still remember when my father, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was on a merry-go-round. In a, it was a family picnic of some kind. There were a lot of people around, and I was, I was a num- one of a number of small kids that was on a, a merry-go-round. Do you, you remember what a merry-go-round? I don't know if they still have them or not, or if they've been eliminated due to liability reasons or something. But, um, you know, it's a big round uh, device that uh, kids can ride on, you spin it around, and it has handles on it that kids can hang on to it. Well, I was one of the kids on the merry-go-round, and, and uh, suddenly a guy appeared out of nowhere, uh, probably late teens or, or uh, early 20s, and, and he just started spinning this thing like crazy. I mean, he, he spun it so fast that a couple of the small kids were, were thrown off the, the uh, merry-go-round. And, and suddenly, in a flash, my dad appeared out of nowhere, and he confronted this guy. And... Uh, and uh, it was, he was angry. It was an angry confrontation because he felt his, his kids were at risk. And so uh, he got right in this guy's face. I thought, I think I remember it so vividly because I thought there was going to be a fist fight there. And I think there was a little pushing and shoving maybe, but finally the guy backed off and went on his way. You see, my, my dad acted in anger appropriately to protect me in that circumstance. Here's another example. Perhaps like you, or like me, you were outraged when you learned what Larry, had na- Larry Nasser had done at MSU to victimize hundreds of young women over the past two decades. I remember saying angrily to my wife when I learned about that, I, I said, I would just like to beat the snot out of that guy. I-, I know that may seem shocking to you, but I think that many of you had the same feeling at the time. Now, she gave me a look like, we, this is, we're in our 48th year, she, she gave me a a look like, relax, big boy, there are people that can take care of that. <laughs> Again, the outrage is understandable and is entirely appropriate in that kind of injustice, but it's the response that can be sinful. Anger as, as an emotion, uh, to, as, as an emotional response to evil or injustice that we see around us is not sinful, but it's the, it's the angry reaction sometimes that gets us into trouble, that can be sinful and destructive in our relationships with other people as, as well. I often caution uh, couples uh, to be careful with their words during conflict uh, because words are weapons. They've heard me say it again and again. Words are weapons. And the angry accusations and personal attacks leave deep wounds that can't be repaired with a simple apology. They undermine the emotional intimacy and the, and the positive regard that you have to have for each other in a marriage relationship in order to sustain that relationship 
over time. Honesty is not saying whatever is in our heads, uh, as some people think. Uh, sometimes uh, there are things in our heads that should never come out of our mouths. Just because uh, that's not being honest, that's, that's being mean, it's being cruel, and it's very destructive. One, one final note on where anger comes from. And not all anger comes, to, uh, comes in response to evil and injustice and, and an offense that occurs in our lives in real time, right now. In fact, some of the anger that sometimes we bring into our relationships uh, comes from uh, an, an origin in painful and traumatic and disappointing experiences that occurred much earlier in life. Um, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich, who wrote uh, the book How We Love, Marriage and Family Counselors, um, put it this way. For 15 years, we did not understand this simple truth. Our marriage problems didn't start in our marriage. There were childhood wounds beneath our most irritating behaviors. And I see this truth in the experience of, of couples as well, all the time. In other words, painful and discouraging experiences earlier in life can result in anger, resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness that can bleed over into our current relationships, our, our marriage, our family, our workplace relationships, can poison our ability to have healthy relationships until we can recognize what happened to us, uh, acknowledge its impact on us, and, and then understand better strategies for moving forward in a, in a healthier way. Gary Chapman uh, talks about a, a three-step process. Gary Chapman in his book, Anger, Taming a Powerful Emotion, uh, talks about a, a three-step process for for releasing stored up anger. And keep in mind, I'm simplifying here what he spent a half a chapter on. I'm gonna spend three lines on here. He said, first of all, think back as far as you can and make a, a two column list. Uh, names of people who hurt you in the past and, and how they hurt you, those two things. And then uh, once you have that list, focus on each instance in prayer, uh, allowing God to, uh, asking God to allow you to release that anger and unforgiveness that you feel and, and turning each person and the wrong that they did against you over to God to do what he thinks best in that situation. And then ask God for his Holy Spirit's power to release you from the control of that stored up anger, bitterness and unforgiveness and, and, and to live out the grace and the love of, of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not always safe or wise or even possible uh, to reconcile that is to rebuild mutual trust with a person who's hurt us earlier in life. Um, but we can always forgive because that's something we can do unilaterally and it, and it releases us from the uh, control of that, that anger. We can forgive. Let's look at three responses to anger in uh, 1 Samuel 25 from uh, Nabal, from David, and from Abigail, the three characters that we're going to, to look at today. And um, the first part of the passage, we're going to read it in chunks. It's a little bit longer passage, so we'll, we'll read it in pieces. The we're going to read the first eight verses of 1 Samuel 25, uh, beginning with the part where, where David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's how riches were measured in those days. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, 
and the, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. In fact, she's described as understanding, intelligent, uh, sensitive, and, uh, and a woman of good judgment in, in some of the other translations. That's what that word means, discerning. And, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Uh, that's not all. He was, he was also described as harsh, boorish, badly behaved, surly, and an evil man. He was a Calebite. I don't know if there's a connection there or not. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and, and to your son, David. So here's the setting. David was a fugitive at this time. He was on the run from, his, uh, uh, from King Saul, who was trying to kill him at the time. David had accumulated 600 men around him, 600 fighting men. He'd already distinguished himself in battle, and, uh, and he had been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the next king of Israel. So he had a, he had a future ahead of him. And Nabal was described as a, a rich but harsh and boorish and badly behaved and surly and evil men whose shearers had been protected by David's men in Carmel during the shearing. It was a tribal culture. And so uh, it, was, it could be a lawless culture. And uh, uh, so it was a good thing to be surrounded by 600 guys with swords. And that's what, that's what the protection that, that David had provided to Nabal's crew out there doing the shearing of these thousands of, of sheep. Abigail, Nabal's wife, was described as beautiful and discerning, understanding and wise. Well, you might, you might ask yourself, if she was so wise, why did she marry this guy? Well, keep in mind, we're in a different culture. And, and this probably was an arranged marriage that she had no choice in. She may have, have been uh, much younger than Nabal. And, and so once she was in, this wasn't our culture, once she was in that situation, she, had, she really had no recourse uh, but to remain in, in that marriage. And David asked for a favor here. That really wasn't that unusual in this culture. He asked for a gift of provisions for his men in return for the favor, in return for the protection that they had provided uh, Nabal's men. And that was entirely consistent with the, the culture of the time. And that there was a, an expectation for hospitality in that culture. And, and so when uh, men came in a situation like this, it was expected that Nabal would provide the, the provisions that that David had asked for, especially since he asked for them with respect and, and deference to Nabal. Well, let's look at how Nabal responded in uh, verses 9 through 11. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? 
So that, that's how he responded. Notice that he didn't just politely refuse and explain why he couldn't accommodate David. Rather, he, he insulted him and he treated him with contempt. There was no worse insult in that culture than to show disdain and contempt for one's family. And that's what Nabal did here. He lived up to his name as, as the, the, the name Nabal means fool. And he, he certainly lived up to his name in, in that case. He, he also failed to understand a basic biblical principle for diffusing conflict. And that is this in, out of Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, uh, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And that is exactly what happened in, in this situation. People who treat those around them, uh, even in our day, with anger and contempt uh, tend to destroy the relationships around them. In a marriage or, or any other relationship for that matter, the continued venting, uncontrolled venting of anger on another person will ultimately destroy that relationship. Nobody can survive a continual emotional flogging and over time, it destroys the mutual positive regard and the emotional intimacy that that relationship needs to survive. Uh, Leslie Vernick in The Emotionally Destructive Marriage puts it this way. Emotional abuse systematically degrades, diminishes, and can eventually destroy the personhood of the abused. One angry accusation triggers a, a hurtful response and the conflict escalates until there's a a pattern of conflict that creates a downward spiral in the relationship. Everything is a trigger, it, it seems. And it, uh, it focuses uh, people on winning the immediate battle rather than doing what it takes to restore a healthy, long-term relationship where both couples or both partners get their, their needs met. Well, let's look at David's knee-jerk response to Nabal's insult in uh, verses 12 through 17. This is how David handles the insult. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And this is a description of Nabal. He, he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. In other words, he just doesn't listen. So, uh, David's response, uh, two things happened when David heard about this insult. Number one, he became angry. Notice he became angry, first of all. And then he made a, a deliberate decision to respond to that insult with violence in a way that uh, would kill a lot of innocent people in the process. David himself ignored two biblical principles on on how to handle anger in relationships. First of all, that losing our temper will not accomplish God's purposes in that situation. James tells us everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce 
the righteousness of God. If we've lost our temper, we're headed in a different direction than God is in that situation. Allowing anger to dictate our words and our actions gives Satan the chance to defeat us and to destroy our relationship and to neutralize our influence for the kingdom. Somebody asked me, what do you mean by that last night? What I mean is that if you're a person who consistently becomes, if you're a person who calls yourself a Christian and you're known as a Christian and you, you consistently erupt into anger, it will damage any testimony you have. People will look at that and say, um, you know, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with that. He doesn't look much like Jesus, right? So it damages our, it neutralizes our influence for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul tells us, don't let sin, don't sin by letting anger control you. He doesn't say it's wrong to be angry. He says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for angry, anger gives a foothold to the devil. It allows him the opportunity to influence our, our life and, and our circumstances. Well, David was doing exactly that. He was allowing his anger to control his decision-making rather than stopping to ask God how he would have him respond in that situation. Gary Chapman comments on the, the destructive impact of explosive anger on relationships out of his book, uh, Anger, Taming a Powerful Emotion. He says, uh, explosive angry behavior is never constructive. It not only hurts the person at whom it is directed, it destroys the self-esteem of the person who's out of control. On the practical side, uh, he proposes five steps to, to handle your anger. Uh, first of all, consciously acknowledge to yourself that you're angry. Uh, some, some of us can't even bring it to the place of self-awareness and acknowledge the fact that we're angry. Acknowledge the fact that you're angry, even if you have to say it out loud. That stops the destructive knee-jerk response of lashing out with, with angry words or, or actions. It, it pauses the action so as to allow us to apply reason to our anger and consider our options. And then restrain your immediate response. Break the cycle. Break how you usually respond uh, by not taking the action you typically would. Usually that's one of two things. Either we, we vent angrily on the people around us, hurtful accusations, damaging assaults on the other person's character, or here's the, here's the other way that we can respond, and that is uh, withdrawal, an emotional withdrawal, using silence and emotional distance as a weapon. Uh, both are very destructive. So we, we need to avoid saying or doing what we may regret in that situation. One young mom who's a friend and, and who um, uh, is, over, is working on overcoming her own anger, I asked her for advice the other night and I said, uh, listen, I know you struggle with this. Um, what would you tell people? I'm going to be talking about anger this weekend. What would you tell people about that and how, how you're working to overcome that? And she said, well, Gary, you know, right at this point, this restraining your immediate response. She said, right at that point, I, I find it helpful to, to, to just stop and pray and ask God to, to help guide and control my words and my actions in that situation. And I think that's great advice. God can do what we cannot in many circumstances, in our hearts and minds especially. Locate the focus of your anger. What is it that another has said or, or done that's made us so angry. Identify the offense and, and, and how serious is it really? Uh, the seriousness of that offense will help to decide and, and to guide 
how we respond to it and, and whether we respond to it. If, if it's the case that our anger is all out of proportion to whatever the offense was, maybe it's the case that uh, we're projecting unresolved anger and bitterness and unforgiveness from our past into that situation and we're damaging other people uh, with something that, uh, that, that they, don't, uh, they don't really have coming because it's, some, it's coming from someplace else. We're projecting it onto a person in a current relationship. It gets us stuck in that, uh, in that cycle of conflict, if you will. And then analyze your options. This is what David failed to do. Ask yourself, does the action that I'm considering have the potential for dealing with the wrong in a way that is likely to result in a positive outcome for everybody? Or, or is it just designed to inflict damage and, uh, and cause pain? Is it best for me and the other person involved? Uh, the two most constructive options here are, are to confront the person in a gentle and, and helpful way to get it resolved or, or to deliberately make the, the choice to, to overlook the matter and, and forgive. And then finally, take constructive action. This is what we'll see Abigail did. If you choose to overlook the offense, pray that God will release you from the anger uh, you feel and allow you to forgive the other person and turn the person and, and the offense over to him. If we choose to confront the other person, we need to do it gently from a spirit of humility. We need to listen to them and to truly understand their intentions. And, and then if the person acknowledges they're wrong and apologizes, apologizes or asks for forgiveness, then, then we can receive that and, and grant it graciously. But back to our story. Abigail's wise response to anger that saved her family. Let's read further in uh, verses 18 through 31. Then, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come before you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And, and as she rode the, on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. How brave a woman was this? She went out on a donkey with a bunch of raisins to confront 400 guys with, with swords. Huh? Now, this was a brave woman. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, O Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let, my Lord, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house 
because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as, as you shall live. You see, she's blessing him. She's taking the opportunity to not just ask for forgiveness, but she's blessing him before God right now. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out from, as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you, has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember my servant. What emotions do you suppose that Abigail felt when she learned what Nabal had done? This is the audience participation portion. I'm sorry? There he goes again. There he goes again, yeah. Yeah, well said. And what, what else, what emotions do you think that she felt? Embarrassed, certainly. Worried? Yeah, she, she was fearful, certainly. You suppose she was angry? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. Um, but you notice what she did. Instead of venting, instead of wasting time, venting her anger on Nabal, she took constructive action. She turned her anger into action. It says she made haste. She hurried to assemble a peace offering for David's men. And then she gave orders to her young men, get the convoy moving. I'll catch up with you. And she did not tell Nabal because as her servant said, he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. He, she knew that whatever he said, nothing would be gained by talking, by talking with uh, him. And then she rode out to meet David with an attitude of humility. She took responsibility for what had happened and she asked for David's forgiveness for husband's foolishness and contempt. And then get this, Ab uh, Abigail used her words. She used her words to stir David's heart and allow him to release his anger. And, and folks, I'm, I'm always uh, asking couples to use their words. Use their words. Because when conflict is resolved, it's always because we have used our words wisely. And that's what Abigail did here. She delivered a blessing on David. Then she gently appealed to David's better nature and to the man that God had called him to be. She said, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him, has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. She said, David, you're better than this. Don't do this. Well, David strapped on his sword because he was treated with disrespect and contempt. But he... He laid it aside because Abigail, Abigail bravely challenged him to become a, a better man. She said, this is not who you are. This is not the man that God has called you to be. She approached him with humility and she gave him the respect that he needed in that situation. And in the same, and it, and it stopped the action, didn't it? It stopped the anger and the, and, the, and the violence. In the same way, sometimes we need to stop the conflict in order to rethink who we want to be and what we want our marriage relationship to look like. Leslie Vernick in The Emotionally Destructive Marriage proposes three questions to be asked of a, of a husband or as a, of a wife for that matter. 
to diffuse conflict and begin a, a positive conversation. First question, are, are you happy? Are you happy? Your goal with the first question is to hear your husband or wife's feelings and, and listen compassionately. At the end, you want him to, to feel heard and understood, not judged, shamed, criticized, or condemned. And then what do you see as our most important goal or challenge as a couple if we're going to improve our relationship? Again, we need to listen well, reflect back what we hear, and, and the feeling behind it as well. And, and then don't become defensive or respond angrily, even if it's hard to hear. And finally, what, what kind of husband or father or wife or mother do you desire to be? And then listen compassionately without challenging or arguing or reacting. Uh, and I love this that she says uh, about the healing power of words. She says, honest talk, when bathed in compassionate listening, builds intimacy. That is soothing balm for a broken marriage. Let's see how David responded to Abigail's wise words in uh, verses 32 through 38. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who've kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had, been not, left, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Nabal was being Nabal, right? So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In, in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. He became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. We don't know exactly what happened to Nabal there, but obviously the Lord intervened in such a way to bring justice into that situation and, uh, and, and took his life. Notice that uh, Abigail was successful in stopping David's anger and saving her family because she calmly took constructive action that responded to the disrespect that Nabal felt at the insult that, David, uh, that, uh, that he had delivered to David. I, I find that uh, angry people almost always feel as if they've been wronged. And, and the most effective response is, is listening. Some of you know that I was a state trooper in my previous career, and I, I encountered uh, many angry people. And I have to say that uh, it wasn't that I made all of them angry, but they were angry when I got there, in many cases, and investigating crimes and, and so on. And, and as, a, as a trooper, what I found to be an effective way to intervene there and de-escalate the anger was, listen, I, I see that you're angry. Can you tell me what happened? Tell me what, uh, what happened to make you so upset. And, and then listen attentively, uh, reflecting back both that, uh, that content and, the, uh, and, and the, the feelings behind it. You know, 
uh, even as a SWAT team leader, I found that uh, when, um, when we were in a, a situation where my negotiators could make contact with a barricaded gunman or, or a hostage taker, it, it wasn't about the, the success of that venture, it wasn't about so much about weapons and tactics as it was about communication. If our negotiators could ratchet down the tension, build rapport, and, and uh, help that person feel as if they've been heard and understood in that situation, then, um, then they'd sooner or later they'd put down the rifle and, and come out. That's how you get from the initial demand of a 747 and a suitcase full of money uh, down to the, the place where they're willing to give up the hostages for a cheeseburger and a Coke. Uh, that's how that happens. You, you, you help them to feel heard and understood in that situation. Uh, the, the situation is de-escalated and, and you can resolve it peacefully. So here's a four-step process for responding to any angry person. Acknowledge their anger and your intent to listen and understand. I, I see that you're, you're angry. Uh, why don't you tell me what's on your mind or what happened to upset you? And then listen attentively, reflecting back the content and, and the feelings that, so that they know they're heard. That might sound something like this. So it sounds like you were treated badly. That must have been very discouraging. I can see why you're so angry. And then resist the, the urge in that situation to, uh, to blame, to, do, to defend, to point out their faults, or, or try to fix it by telling them what they should have done. Uh, beforehand. And the goal here is, is uh, in dealing with an angry person is to, is to de-escalate that, that anger through empathy. Uh, help them to feel heard and understood and you'll ratchet the anger down. And then ask what, if anything, you can do to help. If the anger is justifiably directed at you, then take the opportunity to apologize and ask for, for forgiveness and, and, if appropriate, explain your intentions. If not, you can ask to, if it's not directed at you, you can ask to pray with that person and, uh, and help in some other way, perhaps. There's a time, I should say there is a time for godly assertiveness in difficult situations in responding to angry people. When, when habitual angry outbursts are used to, to bully, abuse, and control, uh, the response might sound something like this. Listen, I can see that you're angry but I can't talk to you when you're shouting at me. When, when you've calmed down, I'd be happy to, to discuss this with you and try to resolve the problem. And then if they continue to rant, remove yourself physically from that situation. Go to another room. Sometimes you'll have to go to another house. Uh, when there's a continuing pattern of abusive and demeaning communication, uh, an appropriate assertive response might be something like this. Listen, I, I deserve to be treated with respect in our relationship. When you yell at, swear at, call me names, and so on, I feel disrespected, unloved, anxious, and angry. It hurts me. It damages our marriage. Please speak to me with courtesy and respect. And, and then if, if that doesn't happen repeatedly, then be prepared with consequences. Uh, Gary Chapman, in his book, uh, Anger taming a powerful emotion gives us an example of such a consequence. He, he says uh, uh, there was a wife who was repeatedly verbally and physically abused and finally her husband came home to find the following note on the table. Dear Paul, I love you too much to stay and let you hurt me and destroy your self-esteem. I know you cannot be happy about what happened last night. I will not return until your counselor assures me that you've learned to handle your anger in a more responsible manner. Love, Natalie. I never 
I never recommend that a woman remain in a situation where she's being physically abused. It's just too dangerous. And now, I've covered this very quickly, but if you find you're in a situation like that, I'd encourage you to look into one of these resources, especially The Emotionally Destructive Marriage, Leslie Vernick, or the book by Chapman on anger. Both of those are, are very helpful in navigating through a situation like that. Having said all that, how do we live distinctively as followers of Jesus Christ in such an angry world? Well, the Apostle Paul calls us to a higher standard of behavior. He says, don't be conformed to this world. You need to be different. In Colossians 3, for example, he says, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to, to put off old behaviors and to put on new behaviors. It's a picture of somebody taking off a, a dirty suit of clothes and putting on a brand new suit of, of clothes. He says in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, this is conditional. Everything that follows is hangs on this. If indeed you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and empowering you to become somebody different, then, verse 5, you must also rid yourselves of all these things, such things as these, our old behaviors, the behaviors of the world, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then the, our new clothes, our new suit of clothes. This is what we're supposed to look like. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I often ask Christian couples in conflict, I share this verse with them, I have them read it, and I say, is this what your relationship looks like? Because this is what God has called us to be, not just in marriage relationships, but in all our relationships. This is what will make us distinctive in this world, reflecting the character of Christ in that way. And you might say, well, that's impossible. We're human beings. We mess up absolutely right. We have to be empowered by the Spirit of God to live out Christ's character in this world. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 5.16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, live your life under the influence of the Holy Spirit and, and, and we can behave in a different way. What are the desires of the flesh Paul's talking about? We see in uh, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which means hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All those are old behaviors that were, caused, or were called to shed like an old suit of clothes. And in contrast, the Holy Spirit can empower us to, to live lives that reflect the character of Christ. What does that look like? Here it is, plain and simple. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, and it's self-control. All those things are part of the character of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit uh, can create in us. It's not a do-it-yourself project. 
Living distinctively as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, friends, is not a do-it-yourself project. It requires that we make choices, not simply to, to not copy the angry behaviors around us, but rather that we cult cultivate a, a daily relationship with our Heavenly Father through His Word and through prayer, and that we ask His Holy Spirit to do what we cannot alone do, and that is to live out Christ's character in this world. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, uh, we thank you that belonging to Jesus Christ and uh, the fact that he saved us is more than just being forgiven our sins and, and invited to live with you in heaven forever. That it's all about uh, you transforming us in, from the people we were to the people you desire us to be. We know that the only way that, that we can live out the character qualities of Jesus Christ and be distinctive in this world is that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do that. So we ask for that. We ask that you, you'd empower us to shed our old behaviors and, and, to, and to live out these new behaviors, the character of Jesus Christ in us, that, you, that you'd uh, transform us into the image of Christ in such a way that we'd live lives that are so distinctive uh, that others uh, would look at how we live and that they would be drawn to the Savior as well. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for your time today, folks. Thanks for coming in and enjoy the week.